welcome to Talking and Chill, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. Welcome back from your honeymoon. Thank you. And Zahava Stadler in northern New Jersey. Hey, guys. Hi, Zahava. This month on the podcast, we're talking about Jewish music, about prayer, and about what happens when these things come together. These three interrelated topics are an amalgam of of some conversations we've been wanting to have with each other about Rabbi Shlomo Karbach, who composer and singer who was accused of sexual assault by several women in the Jewish community. So I yeah. guess um, I guess let's just get going on it. Let's start with awesome. the music part, and we'll throw in the the Karlbach stuff kind of towards the end. Does that sound okay? Sure. Yep. To prepare for this segment, we all watched a video of. The evolution of Jewish music. Wait, was that the Maccabees? It looked like the Maccabees. No, no, it was the Y Studs. Another all male. <laughs> <laughs> what? That is their actual name. Another all male Jewish a cappella group with its genesis, I believe, in Yeshiva University. Oh my gosh. Okay. Sure. There's so many of them. Yeah, there are a lot of them. Do you mean so many groups or so many individual members of the Y Studs? I guess both. Yes, I was about to say, both could be true. So many videos or so many studs. Also, do you think that those guys decided to call the group (laughs) the wise studs so that people would have to refer to them as studs? I'm very curious about the name. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah. All right, well, let's just describe the video. We'll include a link, of course, to the video in the show notes. But if you haven't seen it, it is a video of, like, a large number, something like 24 studs. (laughs) A gaggle Uh, of studs. (laughs) uh, Singing a medley of Jewish music, beginning with a song which they identify as coming from the 9th century, and then moving forward in time somewhat unevenly to our modern day. We should say that this video is modeled after the acapella band Pentatonix doing the same thing for music at large. This is the Wysad's attempt to do the same thing for Jewish music specifically. Right. And it's, you know, they're studly (laughs) and they do a good job singing. Um, And I have to say that, like, I was interested at the point where I stopped always recognizing the songs it was basically like in the 90s, I knew 90%. Up until the 90s, I knew all of them, I think. In the 90s, I knew 90% of them. And somehow my knowledge of Jewish music has dropped off since the year 2000. Or I just don't hang with the same crowd as these YU studs, also likely. So, yeah. I think that they also started including, in the 2000s and 2010s, there was more Israeli pop, mm-hmm. um, which might account for some of the songs we didn't know. Yeah, which is interesting in and of itself in terms of what counts as part of the evolution of Jewish music, right? So they're in the first songs were all liturgical. Um, so they, the oldest song they open up with, I believe, is, I mean, I know it as a high holidays tune. and. Yeah moving forward through various liturgical songs, and then ultimately you get to popular music much, much more recently. Um, And towards the very end, you get not only more recent explicitly Jewish pop music, but also like a rap from Subliminal or uh, an Izan Reichel song, a Matisyahu song. So to what extent are those things Jewish music or not, I think is an interesting question. Right. Yeah. Is it bad that I think that it's Jewish music if it is either in Hebrew or about a explicitly Jewish activity such as celebrating a holiday? Well, I don't think it's bad. I also don't totally agree. I, I don't for me it's not a Jewish song if it's a totally secular song performed at in Hebrew by an Israeli group. Like, um, I don't know. What if one of those people is wearing a kippah? Does well, that change it? Well, then it's sexy and <laughs> <laughs> but it's still maybe not Jewish. Okay, fascinating. So how about what makes it Jewish for you? Yeah, I do not think that Israeli music that is not, um, that is not Jewish in content 
or uh, intended at least to be spiritual in some way is Jewish. That said, I do find it, I do enjoy and value when there are Israeli popular music, Israeli pieces of popular music that have reference to Jewish text, which is something that happens a lot with Idan Reichel songs, where um, there'll be like a reference to some language that's familiar from a biblical context that's being used in just in the course of a regular song. So if there's a song about like really expressing like sadness in your relationship, but it's called Mima Makim, which is from the depths, and that's language that we're familiar with from from Psalms, from Tehillim, then that's kind of cool. And it's cool that that reference is meaningful because it's taking place in a somewhat Jewish culture and context in the same way that like writing a song that references Romeo and Juliet is meaningful to an English speaking audience. I think that that's a cool thing. And that's more an accomplishment of there being a state of Israel, I guess, than it is a comment on Jewish music per se. Um, And the ability to blur those lines, I think, is an accomplishment. But I don't think of that as Jewish music. Um, It's kind of music with Jewish literary references. Um, And when I think about Jewish music, I guess first and foremost, I think about the songs that sound kind of like they'd be played by a wedding band at an Orthodox wedding where it's really heavy on the horns and it's a little synthesizer-y and there's a very particular style and you can buy those songs on CD at a Jewish bookstore. And I have to say, I never seek that music out. Yeah, because it's crappy. <laughs> I, I had to help some friends put together a wedding playlist. And it's, if you go to Spotify or YouTube, it's just a lot of like, bad synthesizer or bad horn music. Um, to me, though, I, I, I actually do seek out Jewish music. Um, we have this joke in my family that my brother once like got into friend's parents car and the parents were like oh do you want to listen to any music and he was immediately like oh do you mean debbie friedman because (laughs) debbie friedman was just what that was music that was all we listened to um growing up and so for me i seek out jewish music be not not debbie friedman sorry may she she rest in peace but i don't (laughs) seek out debbie friedman any longer Um, sure sure that's my other playlist (laughs) but uh, i i really do i don't know i don't listen to much music and when i do like i want it to feel that sort of like fullness and um like just joy and connection that i find with jewish music so yeah so you do listen to a fair amount of jewish music i do yeah and do you like so what what are you listening to these days um so i also listen to a lot of jewish acapella um I can't remember the acronym. There's some album that's like the best of Jewish acapella for each year. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Yes, I have gotten that anthology before, but I don't remember what it's called. Yeah, Um, and you know, some of it's really crappy, but um, I really love it. I listen to a fair amount of Joey Weisenberg, Nigunim. One thing that I love is that there are, both with acapella and with Joey Weisenberg, there are a lot of voices in it so it feels full and I feel with my own bad voice like I can sing along without um I I don't know there's like more of an invitation to sing along when there are many voices um I'm trying to think what else I'm listening to well okay so a favorite and I will put this in the show notes um my brother, after he got over his Debbie Friedman phase, he <laughs> is a big fish head. He loves the band Fish. And Fish has an Avinu Malkenu that is really good and just so much fun to like dance and sing to. Wow. I did not know that. I got to yeah. check that out. Yeah. It's really... Also, if you're into like music theory, which I didn't know until I met Daniel, but apparently it switches back and forth from a... Six six to a five six count, and that's interesting for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> You'll take his word for it because it's rare. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
Interesting. I listen to Jewish music. I listen to a lot of acapella for a long time. I started my Jewish music listening with uh, Pizmone from JTS. And um, now I listen to... I listen to some Jewish music. I have some, like, Jewish music playlists on Spotify from various places that I like. Um, and I'm with Mimi. I like... I mostly like the, um, the stuff that kind of, like, sounds like you're at Shul and you're sitting around singing with a lot of people. Sometimes maybe there's also a band there, which would never happen at Sh by Shul, but yeah, you just go with it. Um, and, and sometimes not, but I do, I really like that stuff. I also, because of my parent, I listen to a fair amount of Jewish children's music, but actually I only listen to the, um, CD that I have previously endorsed, um, Me'ashirim Rishonim, a hundred first songs, which is an Israeli collection, um, which is extremely good, sweet, um, songs that are so unbelievably catchy that I like, I like do listening to it and singing it with my daughter, but I'm also sometimes like 36 hours later, I've been singing the same two verses of Ima Yekarali. <laughs> I'm like, I've lost all brain cells. The only thing I know how to do is sing this song. So that's, that, that can be a, a bit much. Um, but yeah, I actually like, do not think of myself as a person who listens to a lot of Jewish music, but then when it comes down to it, I totally do. Um, and I do, I'm surprised Zahava to hear that you don't because I'm, it's interesting to me that it's like, Mimi's like, I, whenever I listen to music, I want it to be Jewish music. I'm like, I listen to a fair amount of Jewish music. Zahava's like, I don't listen to Jewish music. <laughs> this yeah, is a, I was like, wondering... surprising fallout of this conversation. <laughs> well, I, I was actually wondering, like, is this, for me, is this because I don't have, like, a daily or regular prayer practice and this satisfies, like, this gets at some connection that I'm looking for and I can find it there on my own? I don't know. I kind of think it's like a, I, I mean... I know that the reform movement puts a lot of, like, focus on song leaders. Like, they don't, it's not c cantors. I mean, there are cantors in the reform movement, but, like, there is a big thing of, like, song leaders, and that is a role in a lot of reform communities. And, like, I, I know a bunch of people who are at something called Song Leader Boot Camp this weekend. So, like, it's, it's a thing. Um, and... It's specifically, I think, I, a thing in, like, reform camps and, like, reform youth groups. Like, the act of leading other groups of young people in song is a skill that um, the reform movement, like, very intentionally hones in young people. And I think that, like, in... That is starting to be more of a thing in the conservative movement. But, like, in orthodox circles, like, it happens somewhat organically, but because it is not, like, a taught skill, it's also seen of as a kind of just like a thing that just happens. I don't know. So have a correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think you're but right about that. A... But I, it's funny because I guess I was the, I have a lot of organic song leader experience. Um, so partially because I, I really do love to sing and partially because I have just a louder, stronger voice. Um, when I was in seminary, I went to a very singy, kumzitzy gap year program. There was a lot of singing when I was at Harova. And um, and we would all be sitting around and people would be like, hey, Zahava, I would really like to sing X song. Can you start it? Because people knew that if I like put my, my power, whatever, the volume that I don't have an inside voice. So if I put that behind a song selection, it would happen, right? Like people would just pick up the thread. Um, and I, I am definitely a, a, my favorite activity when I was in summer camp, which is not an experience that I loved because I was a humongous dork, but my favorite activity was the like Saturday evening comes it sing along. Um, so this is like something that's, 
that I really enjoy. Like I think my Jewish music experiences have more to do with singing and less to do with listening. Even in prayer spaces, I'm very much a sing along person. I don't, I don't quietly groove along to whoever's leading services. I will, I will pretty much always sing along. In fact, and I wish I remembered the term, but once when I was in college, at the end of Shabbat morning services, a visiting scholar who was like a history professor, as he was walking around, uh, walking out, he had been there with first services, he walked out and he introduced himself and he said, you know, in medieval Ashkenaz, there used to be a woman who was appointed to be the leader of the female singers in Orthodox congregations. Mm. And that's what I thought of when I heard you singing, because I'm almost always the loudest voice wow. in the women's section. Um, it's not necessarily a comment on my vocal ability so much as it's a comment on volume and confidence. Enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, it was just two weeks ago. I don't ago. know. It seems like a compliment. Yeah. I mean, I took it as a compliment, but it was just two weeks ago that, um, that the guy who was leading Musaf in, in my shul on Shabbat morning came over to me at Kiddush and, and thanked me for the backup. So, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the legend continues. <laughs> I will also say, I think it's a particular um, strength and skill that I did not learn in the culture of having a song leader um, to be able to generate and start a song. So like in reform camps, when there's always somebody up there with like a set list, quote unquote, and a guitar, um, you don't really have the power. You might request a song, but they know what they're going to sing. Um, but around a Shabbat dinner table or, uh, yeah, the singings me wrote with other people, there's this, like, everybody looking around, what are we going to sing next? And to be able to hear it and start it is, I think, like, an amazing skill. There is something a yeah. little bit countercultural for me in that I'm, I am sometimes in spaces where uh, women are, where women's singing too audibly is not welcome um and sometimes depending on who I'm with and whether I'm a guest and whatever that is sometimes I'll go for it and surprise people and uh and sometimes you know this past week I was visiting family and I I knew my cousin's husband would not be on board with hearing me sing audibly even at you know even singing Shalom Aleichem and I didn't I kept it really quiet because I was a guest in their home and I wasn't out to make anybody feel uncomfortable that they'd invited me but it is sometimes a, a somewhat countercultural thing that I'm doing should we maybe start talking about our our second kind of component tonight which is Karl Bach as a as a person and as a musician and composer of sacred music um so just to give like a little bit of off-the-cuff background Reb Shlomo Karlbach was famous, particularly in the, I want to say, like, 60s and 70s for um, bringing new life to a lot of Jewish music. He wrote hundreds of melodies that um, made their way through Jewish communities, um, and became, many of which became very popular. And um, he died in the early 90s, I believe. In 1998, Lilith Magazine published an article that basically included a bunch of allegations from women of, I'm actually not sure how they were, would legally be classified, but some I think would qualify as sexual assaults and some were just like unwanted sexual attention and touch. I, I, I'm not trying to belittle them. I do not know what the legal classification would be, but basically inappropriate sexual behavior towards women and girls. Yeah, that article came out in 1998, which was 20 years ago, and it caused a stir at the time, but I don't think anything really changed in terms of general communal understandings of him or people's behaviors around um, Karl Bach's music. But in the past four or five months, the conversations around whether or not it's appropriate for Karl Bach's music to be part of people's synagogue davening has kind of come back, and there are serious conversations happening happening about whether or not it's appropriate. Um, and I think these conversations came in part because his daughter, Neshama Karl Bach, who is also um, a singer and composer of Jewish music, published an article in the Times of Israel 
called, I think, My Sisters, I Hear You, and it was about kind of coming to terms with the accusations against her father um, and what that means for her as his daughter and also as a survivor of sexual assault. So, yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> I guess let's start with just, like, what has been your relationship to Karl Bach up until, say, the last four or five months? Zahava, you want to get started? You know, I think that I encountered a lot of the tunes before I knew who he was or even that there was a single person responsible. Um, I think some of those tunes have become so standard as especially for Kabbalat Shabbat, right? The opening service on Friday night that I definitely learned some of the really basic they're used because they're catchy and inviting and repetitive and easy to learn. And I definitely learn them not as compositions of an individual, but as a tune the same way. I don't know who wrote the tune to like most of like most of the liturgical things I encounter or to Shalom Aleichem and Eshet Chayel or whatever. They just, they were just tunes. I didn't even know that they were 20th century tunes. Um, maybe if I'd stopped to think about the style, it would have been obvious, but honestly, it wasn't something I ever stopped to think about. And there, I have some really happy prayer memories that are, I don't want to say associated with those tunes, but that happened at the time of singing those tunes. I don't think that the individual composition is as important as the fact that I was in an environment with really enthusiastic fellow prayers and that we were together and dancing or whatever it was. And I just, I never associate that with him as an individual. Um, even now it's more like, I remember that I'm supposed to after the fact and that might color things, but it's, it, it's not something that I really experience with those tunes. I don't know how unusual it is for me to be somebody who, who doesn't have an experience of those as something composed by a person, but I really never did. I, mean, I think that's you? pretty, yeah, I actually think, Sahava, that you're, um, what you just said about not associating his tunes with him, I think that's very common. Um, I have a hard time knowing which tunes are his, in part because they're really catchy. They're also, a lot of his Kabbalat Shabbat tunes are very similar to one another um, and they're so pervasive so I spoke about this a little bit last month but just to summarize like learning Karl Bach tunes was a very big part of me feeling um, feeling comfortable in new Jewish circles having grown up in the reform movement learning those tunes was the it, it just yeah it gave me like an entry point to other people's services. Um, and I felt so good once I had mastered them, once I was able to like lead a Kabbalat Shabbat with those tunes. Um, so I feel really strongly now that I actually, I, 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 I want to move beyond that. I want to push the communities that I'm a part of um, to find new tunes. But I'm having a hard time even like getting the, like, the chutzpah in some ways to like talk to some of the minyanim that I go to about, I think that we can do better. I think that A, there are more exciting melodies out there that we can be teaching one another and and newcomers to our community and also like that maybe I, I don't need to hear this man's melodies in my prayer space because I do now find myself thinking about him and the pain that he caused women and girls and it, it just I don't want that in my community but I don't know how to have that conversation. I, I mean, have you guys, have you actually heard synagogues talking about this and not singing them? I mean, I know that, I believe it's 
Central Synagogue in New York City, which is a big reform synagogue, has said that they are not going to sing any Karl Bach melodies for a year. They're kind of going to use that time to evaluate how that goes. I learned about Karl Bach as a person in high school, and even though, yeah, his the Mel- Karl Bach melodies like kind of came into my life right around that point when I was in high school and became more pervasive in my communities around then. Um, so other than Debbie Friedman, like basically if I'm singing a piece of liturgy, the only time when I'm like, I know who wrote this is if it's Debbie Friedman or Karl Bach. And I don't always know for either of them which one it was, but like, you know, that it was one of them. But like, those are the only two composers of Jewish sacred music whose names I even know. Like, I, I literally couldn't name any others until our friend Joey Weisenberg became, did some of this. But like, that's it. That's, those are the three. So I, I am very aware when I'm singing Karl Bach songs. And I mean, I started to learn about Karl Bach like already after this stuff had come out. And I was in college when I read the article for the first time. And I like right away, I was like, why are we singing these songs? This guy's a bad guy. But I don't know. There just wasn't nobody, for whatever reason, it just wasn't a thing at the time. And now it is. And I mean, I am the chair of the ritual committee at my synagogue, and we are like in the midst of conversations about this. And it's interesting. I mean, I do think I'm with you, Mimi. Like, I just feel like it's true that these melodies are really pervasive. And there are some logistical challenges to being like, we're not going to use these melodies anymore. Not least that like, he just wrote so much that you just don't ever know if you're singing a Karl Bach melody or not. Even if you're like me and you like do know a lot of a lot of things when you're like, that's a Karl Bach song, you don't know all of them. Like hundreds of songs. So, um, and the other thing is if you're a community with a lot of lay leaders, then how can you mandate that nobody use these melodies? Like they probably, there's probably many situations in which somebody only knows Karl Bach melodies. Even if they know two melodies to something, they might both be Karl Bach melodies. Like you just, and then like, what is your policy for if somebody starts singing that, that melody while they're leading, what are you going to like rush the bima and like knock them over? (laughs) Like it's something that I am like totally ethically on board with. Given that there is like an enormous library of Jewish sacred music and there are more and wonderful melodies being added to the canon every month. Like, I think it's totally possible and ethically the right thing to do to stop using Karl Bach melodies. I just think that it's actually a really tough needle to thread in that like how you really intentionally do that is not so clear to me. And I think ultimately, like, what we just need is more and more people to be writing more and better melodies that we can apply to our service. And then we'll just end up not doing Karl Bach anymore, you know, in five or ten years. But I think even a community that's trying really hard, if there's any lay leading going on, it's going to be really complicated. And even if there isn't any lay leading going on. Like if you have a cantor who's been leading Friday night davening using all Karl Bach tunes for five years, if they show up and they don't do any of the melodies that they've done for the service at all anymore, like there's a lot of communities where people are going to be up in arms about that and it is not going to feel good to people. Um, And that's sad. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in thinking about how music impacts the prayer experience. Um, I I was thinking about how getting sort of in my head about Karl Bach, the man and his actions does um, tarnish and sort of dirty my experience in a way that I don't want. But I can also get very distracted when I notice that the prayer leader is doing every prayer is a new tune I'm like come on dude like we just we don't want to learn your tunes for everything we want to participate we're not here as 
Right. We're, and we're not here as, as solely audience members where this is participatory. So, you know, I think it's a it's a big challenge um, and one that, you know, has to happen outside of prayer spaces to like learn new songs. Um, and also, I think slowly, just because all new melodies at once is a horrible experience for me. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, in Orthodox shuls, um, with the exception of some sort of old school ones that have um, that have in-house counters, like as a general rule, Orthodox shuls are pretty much all lay-led in terms of services. And so just crafting a policy is challenging and, as Tamar said, pretty impractical. I think actually one of the organic things that's displacing Karl Bartun's is um, people having spent more time in Israel. Um, so just, you know, my generation, much more than my parents' generation, are more likely to have spent significant time in Israel where tunes are different and people learn, you know, oh, you know, a whole bunch of us went to the same uh, gap year program in yeshiva and learned this song, or, you know, this this was a very popular Shabbat song when we were there. And so that actually does bleed over in a way that I think is helpful. But I don't want to take for granted that, um, that it this is an important priority across the board. I think we should dig into it just a little bit more, um, because because so many people's experience of these tunes is actually something totally independent from the individual who wrote them. He's dead and gone and receiving no benefit from them. Um, and I think that there are there are different reasons you might tease out. Like, is the objection that, like Mimi, like you said, that it um, thinking about it means that you're having sort of a tainted prayer experience? Is it that you think that singing the tune somehow honors the person? Um, or is it, you know, or what else is there? But I think that, at least in the spaces where I pray, m- there is less of an awareness um, of composer when people sing Kabbalah tunes, and it's it's like not necessarily worth the effort to weed it out in that active way. On the flip side, I have definitely seen writing from survivors of his uh, abuse that they find themselves in prayer spaces often where they hear his tunes and it's personally painful for them and that's something that I want to credit. Um, so I don't totally know how to thread the needle on this but I'm, I don't instinctively feel that using those tunes taints my prayer experience and certainly they're mixed in with many other tunes. That's so interesting. I... I, I mean, I could totally be wrong. I'd, also, we could totally both be right. But I, I feel like Karl Bach b- was a really charismatic leader. And his, his charisma is something that people talk about and that um, is associated with his music. And his, his personality uh, is something that I think a lot of people do connect to his music. And in fact, like there is a lots of... I think it's less common now, probably not just because of this, but not exclusively. There were like Karl Bach minions that like exclusively do Karl Bach tunes or not, you know, m- mostly do Karl Bach tunes. And there's like a Karl Bach show in New York that was like, I guess it was his show. I don't know that much about the history of it, so I don't want to speak out of turn. Um, but like, there are things that are very much like, not just like a tune to a song that's not really associated with the person. But I think that, I guess what I'm saying is, I think a lot of his tunes are really associated with him as a person and not just Jewish music that happened to be written by him. Um, And so that is part of why I feel like it's important to stop using the tunes if you can, because I do think that it is more of an endorsement than (laughs) just, it's more of an endorsement than a retweet. Um, And... And I, you know, I also think the survivor issue is real. And when we talked about this in um, in a committee meeting, somebody was like, well, you know, we don't, the survivors that don't like it, like, how do we know if we have one in our shul? And I was like, we don't. <laughs> of course we don't. But like, 
We never know. Like, and it's not their responsibility to tell us. But um, if we know that there are some people who have a really hard time with this music, like, we can move away from it. Um, that is something that we can try to do. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it's complicated. I, and I do see, like, some of the songs are really beautiful. And I, I, I do feel some kind of sadness about losing a beautiful Jewish melody. But I also just feel like, we have thousands of years of Jewish history with sacred music as part of it the whole time. Like a million, probably literally a million songs have like come and gone and more will come. And like, it's just kind of the life cycle of Jewish music. It's, it's okay. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about the metaphor of weeding, um, weeding Karlbach out and wondering if rather than focusing so much on weeding his melodies out, if we're just constantly trying to plant new ones in our certain communities and to teach new songs yeah. and to encourage new um, liturgical tunes to be written. Um, for me, Karlbach was important because it felt like the melody, the melodies for Kabbalat Shabbat. Um, and so interesting. You just said Karl Bach was important because it was. Right. But like Karl Bach was a person. Right. No. And so, but I think that that like perfectly demonstrates that like if you think of Karl Bach as an entity and as like a collection of tunes, then it's not very objectionable. But if you think of Karl Bach as like a human who did some very harmful things to other people, then it's a different question. Right. Is it like Karl Bach, the album or this, the composer? Right. Right. I mean, and even along those lines, you know, Tamar, you mentioned Karl Bach Minyanim. I mean, if I was in a shul and they're like, this Friday night, we're going to have a Karl Bach Minyan. All I would assume was that meant they're going to sing a lot. I wouldn't even assume that they were going to sing specifically Karl Bach composed tunes. You know, it last. Last year, the rabbi of my current shul uh, gave a sermon on Shabbat morning in which he quoted Shlomo Kawach. And I sent him an email afterwards and I'm like, I'm assuming you don't know this, but that is not a person who deserves the honor of being quoted from the pulpit. And I sent him the original Lilith article and I put it in a little bit of context. And he responded, I really did not know this. I had heard something about extramarital affairs, but I really didn't know that this was a thing. And he apologized. And, you know, a few months ago, there was a quote unquote Ruach Kabbalat Shabbat service, which I am sure a year ago would have been called at the shul a Karlbach Friday night. And I texted him to thank him for changing the name. And he confirmed that that is why. Um, and what was interesting to me is this article has been out for 20 years. He legitimately didn't know. He legitimately didn't know. And I think a lot of the lay leaders in my community probably have just found out in the last four to five months because it's come up in the context of the wider Me Too conversation. You know, I'm because this is in the context of the wider Me Too conversation, just thinking a little bit about why we do or don't avoid art made by um made by predators, I guess, is the, the best way to put that. I've been thinking a little bit about the difference between different kinds of artists. Um, because there have been a number of actors recently who have essentially been disowned by the industry, right? Like allegations come out about Kevin Spacey and they reshoot an entire Oscar bait movie with someone else playing his part um, to avoid having a movie with Kevin Spacey in it. On the other hand, I know a lot of super progressive people who have no problem listening to R. Kelly. And I've been parsing out why that is. And I think that there is something specific when it comes to a project that you need to hire someone for, right? If you're a director and a studio and making a movie with an entire cast and you'll get that much flack for one of them being this kind of objectionable person that's different from someone who all on their own is the product that you're listening to um and you know yesterday i was in the coffee shop next to my office and a james brown song came on and we're all like bopping around to like soul man and then i'm like this man was a terrible domestic abuser should i not be enjoying this song right and i think that 
there's like a, you know, you can have a conversation about the cliche of Woody Allen. But I think that like ultimately we wind up having different standards for how much endorsement and benefit is required in order to experience this person's art. To hire Kevin Spacey as a director and make a movie in which he is a major character, that's a different kind of endorsement than like R. Kelly has an album because he is a pre-existing successful solo artist and I think Ignition Remix is a fun song and I put on the YouTube video. A a couple of things about that. One is I feel like art separating from the artist is an important conversation to have. But like, I think it's important to also recognize that when we're talking about Karl Bach music, we're talking about prayer. So it's not the same as like bopping around to Ignition Remix. It's like praying to God. And if you're talking to God using the like voice of someone you know to be a sexual predator, like that that's the part where I'm like this seems really not ethically comfortable to me. It's true that I I I think there's a there is an ability to kind of separate it and especially given that like he isn't around, he isn't going to be like making any money or deriving any benefit from it. That does I think make it less problematic, but I think it's still problematic. I th- given that it's prayer. If it was just a song, if he had just written a English or a Hebrew song that wasn't a prayer, then I would feel differently about it. But given that it is almost exclusively music that is sung in the context of prayer or I mean I don't know what you would like Zemiro I don't know how you would classify Zemiro it's not really a prayer but like whatever that is like that it's prayer adjacent yeah I think that's that's complicated somebody when I was talking about this somebody was like well we don't know about like the people who wrote all of the other melodies that we use like they might have been terrible people too which is true, but we don't know. <laughs> like, if we knew they were a terrible person, we might be like, let's not use this melody anymore. Um, and in this case, like, this person did things that were not okay, and it feels weird to use the, his music to talk to God. Like, I just feel like that's not appropriate. Um, and I also think, like, the paradigm you set up of, like, hiring someone versus enjoying something that was already created is totally fine, but especially in the case of music and movies, it's like, you want to listen to a copy of Ignition Remix, like, get someone to burn you a copy onto a CD, put it onto your computer, and then you're not giving any money to R. Kelly, whereas, like, if you stream or YouTube Ignition Remix, like, he's getting money from that. You are hiring him to play the song in that case, as opposed to... Just like somebody's hiring Kevin Spacey to be in a movie. So, I don't know. I think, I, I am, I guess I'm endorsing stealing music. Only steal only music from of, bad people. Yeah. Right. Exactly. No, I mean, I think. I just think, like, R. Kelly doesn't need your money, so you don't need to give it to him. But no, I mean, I, I totally accept the distinction between something that you're enjoying for fun and a prayer. And actually, as you were describing, like, praying to God using this person's tunes the the phrase that sprang to mind is sort of the halachic expression tovel v'sheretz biado if you um if you immerse in a mikvah but holding something impure all at the same time um then you you are undoing what you're doing in the moment and perhaps there's an argument to be made that that trying to like sing kabbalat shabbat in direct praise of god through the vessel of this person's music is tovel v'sheretz biado can i backtrack and just like talk about a Jewish music thing for a second that I was remembering. Yeah. yeah. Okay. When I was a freshman in college, I took a class called world music cultures, which was like a really intro um, class in the music department. And it was a really fun experience of, of music from around the world in different time periods. And there was one day that was nominally about klezmer music. Um, and we had to watch two films, one and one, which was not really about klezmer music, and this seems like a total misnomer, was called The Last Klezmer, which was about the this very old man in Poland, this elderly Jewish man. The movie was probably made in the 90s, early 90s, who was basically credited as the, the last 
Jewish musician still in Poland since the war, since World War II. And we were having this discussion about what constitutes preserving Jewish music or preserving music of a culture in general. And there was a scene in the movie where in order to preserve and carry forward his musical tradition, you see him teaching this student who is a Catholic Polish woman to sing Eufen Pripyczek, which is a Yiddish language song about a child learning the, the Hebrew alphabet for the first time, learning to like sound out prayers in the Hebrew alphabet. And like I learned this song as a five-year-old to sing in a school play so that all the grandparents could cry about their five-year-old grandchildren singing Eifin Pripyczek. And I was sitting there in class and there was a larger discussion to be had about who has the right to sing what and appropriation and it, it fairly complicated. But I was trying to explain why this bothered me so badly. And I am like a freshman in college and I start to cry in the middle of class. Mm. And I could not convey to these people. It's not that I didn't think she had a right to sing the song. It's that her singing the song did not constitute preserving a tradition of Jewish music. And the inherent contradiction and irony of preserving this song, which is about the transmission of Jewish tradition, by passing it along outside the Jewish people, and this is going to be the lifeboat that carries Jewish music forward, felt so dark and painful to me. And I'm like crying in this lecture and everybody's staring at me. And the professor, I think, thinking that it was primarily about appropriation was saying, yes, there there are many debates about who has the right to sing this music. And I felt that I just really didn't get it across. But I think that just this memory, I may not seek out Jewish music on a day-to-day basis and listen to it, but music that is meant to carry meaning, like whether it's prayerful or or otherwise Jewish substance, I think does does hit home for me in a significant way. And and maybe that story is is a better distillation of my connection to Jewish music than asking about my Spotify playlist. Beautiful. Can I ask a question? Do you ladies think that there is something inherently wrong about taking a piece of Jewish liturgy and using a Christian, like an ex, like a Christian or gospel melody to sing that song? This is another thing we've talked about in a minion that I'm a part of with the, um, the gospel tune, like about a sanctuary yeah, prepare um, me a sanctuary. To be your sanctuary. Yeah. I feel like it's appropriation. I I think there's there's like some Jewish obsession also with like black gospel music mm-hmm. and I yeah, it feels weird to me. If it feels if it feels like something that that if if somebody overheard it, they would be like, "Wait, what?" what's going on then i don't think we should be doing it i do think that i do think that gospel music is so um so stylistically recognizable that that but what if it's not gospel like i'm not talking about black gospel or not necessarily what if it's like this i haven't heard this in a while but people used to do um sometimes seem shalom to at the end of the repetition of the musaf amida to amazing grace I just think that if it's that recognizable, then people are going to be like, oh, oh, it's the Amazing Grace one. That's cool. That's cool. And it it takes them out of the moment and places them in something that is very much not where they're where you're trying to put their minds. And so I don't know if if I I think there's a separate question to be had about the, you know, the status of. Christianity from a Jewish legal perspective and is this benefiting potentially from something that might count as idolatry and a more fundamental legal problem but I I don't it doesn't feel good to me I'm with you in theory but in practice I feel like there's some like super beautiful tunes some of which would be recognizable as Christian tunes to Jewish audiences and some of which wouldn't because like why would most people know that this happens to be like a church song where it's like 
why can't we just rip off this church song? It's so (laughs) good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's a, I mean, this is kind of a sidebar, but like one of the things that makes a song like really good for Jewish liturgy is like, can people sing along to it? And it's not always that easy to tell if it's a song that people can sing along to. But if it's a song that people have been singing in church for 150 years or whatever, you know already that people can sing along There's to it. There's precedent. So you're good. Exactly. Anyways. All right. Well, now I think it is time for our endorsements. Zahava, share with the, with the class. What would you like to share with us? Okay. So um, this is actually a great segue. Um, my endorsement... <laughs> is uh, my favorite song of last year, which is a somewhat ironic choice, which is My Church by Marin Morris. Do you guys know this song? No. No? It is a country song, and it is not really about Christianity. It's kind of a play on how much country songs intertwine with church music sometimes. The premise of the song is, I'm not that religious, but my church is listening to country music in my car. So... Hmm. The um, the opening the opening verse I'll just say and then I'll I'll sing a bit of the chorus. So if you are a listener who does not want to hear a woman's singing voice, feel free to fast forward at that point for about ten seconds. Okay, so the opening verse is um, I've cussed on a Sunday, I've cheated and I've lied, I've fallen down from grace a few too many times, but I find holy redemption when I put this car in drive, roll the windows down, and turn up the dial. Um, and the chorus is, can I get a hallelujah? Can I get an amen? Feels like the Holy Ghost running through ya. When I play the highway FM, I find my soul revival singing every single verse. Yeah, I guess that's my church. And it's like a great catchy, like you listen to it twice and you know all the words. Um, and just the experience of music being prayer and prayer being music, it just felt too apropos not to share, and it's a great song. That is perfect. That's so me. <laughs> that's <laughs> like amazing. That. How did you find that, Zahava? Do you listen to country radio? Not a lot. I've developed, no, but I have developed a new appreciation for the poppier sort of new country as work music. Um, mm. It's... Like, just really, it's really fun to work to, but it's not, like, intrusive enough that it distracts me. Um, so she winds up on those lists. And this, it was just, like, a, a big country hit this past year. It was my church. Um, so, yeah, Marin Morris, M-A-R-E-N Morris. Um, fantastic song. Not a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> As Adam Sandler would say. Oh, I did have one more conventional sort of workhorsey endorsement, which is that... Um, Right around now, I am preparing uh, to lane at a women's Megillah reading, which I do annually on Purim. And if you guys uh, are not familiar with this, of all things, the Beverly Hills Chabad has a great online tikkun. Um, So if you are preparing some learning and you want just a very traditional layout where you have the kind of script you would see in a scroll, in a Torah or Megillah scroll, but uh, one with with vowels and cantillation and one without as you would see it in the scroll they have a great top and bottom of the screen you can scroll one without scrolling the other or you can match them up very clear like a really nice printed tikkun so the beverly hills chabad very useful cool cool uh all right mimi what have you got to endorse okay so i want to um I have a few endorsements. Two are musical. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I really want to encourage everybody to listen to the fish version of Avinu Malkeinu. Um, it is just so fun, and you get the tune that you know from Shul, from High Holidays, um, but with just like a little bit of like a danciness to it. Um, and I actually find it hard now. Uh, when we're singing Avinu Malkinu in Shul, I'm, I'm like, I want to groove a little bit. Like, let's add another beat. Um, so I will add the a YouTube video or some sort of link for that. Um, 
I also have been exploring a little bit more baking, and I found a really good recipe for a cinnamon chocolate mandel bread um, that I want to share with with people. Um, sometimes I think mandel bread is too crunchy and dry, mm-hmm. and this one was like yeah. just so good. Um, so share the link to that and then lastly as Tamar mentioned I was just on my honeymoon and I was spending two weeks in Vietnam and Cambodia um, and one thing that happened being surrounded by so much new um, and also not many people who speak English is that my husband and I found ourselves like humming or singing the first few lines of a Jewish song or a Jewish liturgical song and then the other person had to like catch up and figure out what we were singing um so we were like walking through Anchor Wat and chanting like a random line from Verhafta and the other person had to like finish it um and so (laughs) it just was like this nice um familiarity um said i want to encourage if if jewish music is like one of your go-tos if it really is deep down um it also can be really fun to play with with other people so that's all awesome wow yeah um okay so i have kind of a down urban endorsement and i'm sorry that this is um what we'll be ending with but there was an article in the foreword um at the end of january called um, after a teen tour, tour turned into an abuse nightmare, um, waiting on an apology by Jeff Nathan Kazis, Kazis, um, and uh, it is about uh, a counselor on a USY on Wheels trip in 1997 who um, molested some of the boys on the trip, and. It was just a really intense read for me because I know a lot of the people who are mentioned in the article, um, and I was on USY on Wheels a couple of years later, and because it really details a situation where a Jewish organization, like, utterly failed in their response to um, something like this happening in the community and just, like, did a bad job of addressing it, Um, and it's now been 20 years and a lot of the people involved are dead or no longer in their jobs. And so there's not really any accountability to be had. Um, But it was a reminder to me of, you know, I, I think that just we as a society have not figured out how to do this well, or that's not true. It's not that we have not figured out how to do this well. It's that um, people are just not in a place where they're willing to be public about this kind of thing um, and and do do the things that need to be done in order to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Um, just the like the fact that this man was molesting children, he was fired, but they did not like contact the congregation that he worked for. Um, and so he went on to molest more children, one of whom attempted suicide. And it's just like, why? This could have been, you know, this did not need to happen. Um, and it, you know, it just, it's very depressing and sad and really made me think differently about, um, about my community or the community that I, uh, the, the youth group that I grew up in and just like how hard it is for for any group to really come to terms with the fact that there's somebody inside doing something this bad and uh, address it in a appropriate way. So anyways, it's not a fun read, but I think it's really important. Thanks for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. We really use those suggestions, so please leave them. And you can also leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You should search for Jewish Public Media or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. 
which is a great way to support our show and make sure that we can bring you a new episode every month. See you next month. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye, ladies.